Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, airing every Tuesday. I'm Melanie Blackman, the strategy editor for Health Leaders. My guest for today's episode is the amazing Dr. Patricia Gabo, retired CEO of Denver Health and Hospital Authority, and Professor Emeretta for the University of Colorado School of Medicine, as well as published author. Dr. Gabo's medical career spans over 50 years and includes working as an academic nephrologist, serving as a physician leader and clinician, working as a contributor to national healthcare policy, and serving as health system CEO for 20 years. During our conversation, Dr. Gabo talks about her amazing career journey, her book, Times Now for Women Healthcare Leaders, A Guide for the Journey, and she also shares really great advice for women who want to break through barriers and become leaders in healthcare. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation. Patty, thank you so, so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's so great to speak with you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to explain to the audience about my voice. I have spastic dysphonia, and the treatment is Botox. doesn't do anything for my wrinkles, but it does give me a breathy voice, so I sound like Marilyn Monroe. And although you can't see me, I can assure you I don't look like her. <laughs> well, I will try not to call you Marilyn during this interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, jumping right in here, Patty, can you kind of walk me through your incredible career path? Well, you probably would expect that I would start this answer by talking about my first real job, but I want to actually start with my family because I believe that underscores that the path to leadership starts very early in a girl's life. The messages and support that we give our young girls from the very beginning is very important. I was lucky to grow up in an extended Italian immigrant family that valued education for women and men. My grandfather came to this country um, when he was 16. And he had a saying that he pronounced over and over again, that if you get an education in America, there is nothing you can't do. And he didn't just say it. He acted on it. He put my mother through college along with her two brothers during the Depression. That certainly was not what was generally happening in immigrant families. And that value was passed on to me. When I was about 10 years old, I started talking about wanting to go into medicine. And my mother encouraged me to be a doctor. Certainly not the norm for a second generation immigrant growing up in rural America. I attended a rural high school and my father was actually my teacher for all my history classes. And he had three rules for me. Do your homework, sit in the front row, 
of raise your hand. He started the lead-in concept way before Sheryl Sandberg. And I followed that rule all my life. I never sat in the back. Well, I was never silent. Maybe that's why I have my voice problem. But I think that really helped me to become a leader. I attended medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. I was one of six women in a class of 125, which was a pretty interesting experience. And there was a woman faculty, I think the only woman faculty, in nephrology, and she was a great doctor and a gifted teacher. And she was one of the reasons why I went into nephrology. And it shows the importance of having women faculty at our medical schools to be role models and mentors for us. The other reason I went into nephrology is I just loved the specialty and we should do what we love. Now, I had a medical school advisor who kept telling me I had to go into pediatrics, dermatology, or radiology because that's what women did. I informed him quite vociferously that that wasn't what I was going to do. So that was how I became a nephrologist. By the time I finished my training, I was married. And so I was one of those early people in a two-career situation. And fortunately for my husband, who was an academic computer scientist, and me, Denver and Boulder area fit our bill. I wanted to be at a safety net institution, and I wanted to be in academic medicine. And Denver Health was perfect. But there were two problems. Denver Health had no nephrology division, and there was no physician. An interesting challenge. I was right out of my training, but I accepted the challenge to start the division of nephrology. And it underscores that women who want to move into leadership positions have to be willing to take risks. If you always want to be safe, you're not going to enter the executive suite. And uh, from becoming head of nephrology, which meant it was just me, I then became chief of medicine, then chief medical officer. And then for the last 20 years that I was at Denver Health, I was the CEO. And each step of promotion that occurred was because my mentors and my sponsors pushed me forward. And I want to underscore for other women who are listening, if a man tells you you can do the job, believe it. Because there are plenty of times when they tell us we can't. My mentors and sponsors said, you can do this. You should do it. And so I did. That was my career. It sounds like, you know, mentorship and sponsorship, whether it was from your own family or leaders or teachers later on in your life, that that has made such a big impact. That's true. What has been your overall experience learning and working in healthcare as a woman? I know this isn't a universal experience for women. But my overall experience in becoming a physician, an academician, and a leader were all positive and very rewarding. In some ways, it was an advantage. 
being the only woman in many groups, I was always noticed. I also found that say things to men in power that another man could not say. That gave me a lot of influence with people in leadership, whether they were division chiefs, department chiefs, or even mayors. A large part of my positive experience came from where I worked. I tell my mentees, you need to work at an institution that aligns with your values. Denver Health, as a major academic safety net, was a perfect fit for me. And in some ways, a safety net institution is a really good environment for women who aspire to leadership because these institutions are committed to equity in a very broad sense. So they're open to women in leadership. And in turn, I've had many men tell me that women leaders perpetuate that commitment to equity, creating a virtuous cycle. Another reason why it's so positive an experience was I was blessed to work with a great team of men and women, not just doctors and nurses, but housekeepers and gardeners who all were exceedingly mission-driven. and it, it created a wonderful environment. The other reason why I think my experience was so positive, as a woman leader, I was able to give opportunity to other very talented women. So throughout my 20-year tenure as CEO, I had a woman's COO, a woman's CFO, a woman's CNO, a chief government officer, a chief communication officer, a general counsel, a head of the health plan, and of the foundation. And they were my friends. And women often say they feel isolated in leadership, but I spent a lot of time with my leadership team, both men and women. And that really, I think, insulated me from feeling alone or isolated. We had great personal relationships as well as being great colleagues. That sounds like such an amazing overall experience. And it seems like your attitude and tenacity has really helped you in your career as well. Yes, I, I never was one to give up. When I became CEO of Denver Health, I decided that we couldn't really function within the confines of city government. And so I wanted to become an independent entity. So imagine going to a mayor and saying, I've been thinking that your second biggest department of city government would be better off away from you. And it took me four years to convince him. At one point, he said to me, Patty, are you ever getting off this issue? And I said, yes, as soon as you say yes. So tenacity is important. If something has to be done, you can't give up. In addition to your career, you also published a book in 2020 titled Times Now for Women Healthcare Leaders, A Guide for the Journey. Can you go into a little bit of detail on why you wrote this book 
and why women leaders are needed in healthcare. Well, I wrote the book for four main reasons. The first is that American healthcare has many problems. And I don't blame men for all these problems. But the fact is, if you look at all the tables of leadership, whether it's government or healthcare institutions, they're predominantly white men. And this gets to your issue of why do we need women? If we want different answers to the question, we need different leaders at the table. We need men and women. We need white people and we need people of color and we need old people like me and we need young people who have a different perspective. And I really believe if we want to solve the problems that exist in American healthcare, which are many, we are going to have to have different people at the table. So that was the first reason. The second reason was just simple fairness. 83% of the frontline workers in healthcare are women, but only 30% of the C-suite and only 16% of the CEOs. And that's just not right. And the third reason is very important. Women have a great deal to bring to the table. Goldman Sachs ran a full-page ad in the New York Times a couple years ago where they asked the question, what changes when women lead a business? And their answer was everything. There's a lot of robust data that when women lead an organization, the profitability of that organization increases. But women's skills go way beyond profitability. And one of the studies that I really love was by Zenger Volkman, which is a consulting company. And they looked at 7,000 managers and executives in high-performing companies using their 360 evaluation. And women scored higher than men on many variables, including integrity, driving for results, championing change, inspiring and motivating others. And I saw this firsthand with my team at Denver Health. I mean, we were a safety net with 40% of our patients not being able to pay us and 70% being vulnerable individuals. And yet we were in the black every year for 20 years and we had outcomes that were equal to the very best academic health centers. The fourth reason I wrote the book was because the journey to leadership has a lot of barriers. And I think it's very helpful to women to have those who have walked the path create a guide for them about what are the things you have to look for and how can you get around these barriers. I really love the title of your book too, Times Now. How can healthcare leaders continue to diversify their healthcare C-suites and even leadership below them? Well, you know, the first part of solving a problem is to identify it and to be aware of it. One of our governors uh, in the past said there are four stages to solving problems. The first step is no talk, no do, when you don't even know the problem exists. 
the second is talk. Now do when people start to say, hey, wait a minute, I think this is a problem. The third phase is no talk, do when you actually start to problem solve. And the final phase is you've solved it and now you're back to no talk, no do. And I would say we're right now in somewhere between talk, no do and no talk and do. And I think we recognize the problem to some degree, but I think for a long time, we thought the problem was one of the pipeline. But it's very clear that it's not a pipeline problem. This is a barrier problem. Let me just underscore that with two examples. In my discipline of internal medicine, 40% of the residents and 40% of the faculty are women, but less than 20% of the chairs. In OBGYN, over 80% of the residents and over 60% of the faculty are women, but less than 30% of the chairs. To me, one of the greatest barriers to equality and leadership is lack of equity. We often use these terms, equity and equality, interchangeably, but they are very different. And the difference matters to women. Equity is about leveling the playing field. And if we're going to level the playing field for women, there are four areas we have to address. Maternity leave, child care, family leave, and pay equity. The health profession is the profession with the greatest gender inequality. A very recent study from Doximity showed that there's a $100,000 a year difference in pay between a woman physician and a man physician. And that hasn't changed over years. Our institutions, if they're really going to have women in the C-suite, need to level the playing field. It's shocking still that there are these issues out there, especially with the pay equity and so hopefully the healthcare system can make steps towards fixing that. I would say that as women physicians, we have to be aware of this for all women in healthcare. We need to think about these things for our clerks and our housekeepers and our nurses and our medical students and our nursing students. This is about creating more equality for women across the board in healthcare. And, and we shouldn't forget that. What advice do you have for women working in healthcare who want to break through those barriers into healthcare leadership? Not surprisingly, I have a fair number of pieces of advice. The best way to be successful is to be authentically you. The other advice I would give, we touched on a little bit earlier, and that's having mentors and sponsors. They're not the same. They're both important. Mentors guide you and sponsors open doors for you. And you have to find a mentor. And that means asking yourself some questions about what you want in a mentor. Do they need to be a woman? Do they need to be in your field? Do they need to be at your institution? Do they have the time? Do you like to work with them? But then you have to ask them. 
the sooner you get mentors and sponsors, the better it is. Another really important piece of advice is you have to lead from where you stand. Start where you are right now. First of all, show up, not just physically, but emotionally. Identify your passion and become an expert in that area. And then go where the action is around that and raise your hand and contribute. When you do that, you'll become a thought leader. And when you become a thought leader, that can lead to positional leadership. But even if it doesn't, it will lead to having influence in the domains that you care about. Apply for jobs you want. Maybe you won't get everyone, but you'll gain experience and you'll gain confidence. And the last piece of advice that I often give my mentees is that as a physician, you're going to have a 40-year career. You do not have to do everything in the same five-year period or even the same 10-year period. We have to be willing to compartmentalize our lives a little bit. There are some times when one thing is going to get priority, and there are times when other things will get priority. And, you know, don't become anxious about that. View it as a long life and a long career and many opportunities to blossom and contribute. Beautiful advice. I love the bloom where you're planted mindset and also reaching out and being proactive and seeking that mentorship or sponsorship. You know, we've covered a lot about your career. So I kind of want to turn the tables on to you and now. Are there any passion projects you're currently working on during your retirement or anything that um, you want to share? I have to say that throughout my entire career, my passion has been to try to help create a fairer and more just healthcare system. And that really didn't change when I retired. And I hope to continue to contribute to that effort until the day I die. There have been two activities that have enabled me to continue to exercise that passion. One was serving on boards whose missions were meaningful to me. And the other was to share my experience through writing and lecturing. Currently, I serve on the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Board, which is committed to a culture of health for every American and an opportunity for health for every American. And I chair the Lown Institute Board, which is committed to try to help develop a just and caring healthcare system for America. Since my retirement, I've written two books, The Lean Prescription, Powerful Medicine for Our Ailing Healthcare System, was about Denver Health's journey with lean or Toyota production system. And we've talked about times now for women healthcare leaders. And now I'm working on my third book on Catholic healthcare in America. And I love opportunities like the one you're giving me now to do this podcast and 
to talk to other women about the rewards of healthcare and the opportunities that healthcare creates for us to really help America be what it can be. No, and I can't thank you enough, Patty, for taking the time to speak with me on the podcast and joining me. Your career and post-career journeys are just so inspiring and can't wait for that third book to come out. That's really exciting. Well, I can't wait either. (laughs) (laughs) Writing books are a journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, As a writer myself, I can definitely appreciate that. (laughs) And thank you for listening to the Health Leaders Podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday with more healthcare industry insights.